0: Our scripture today comes from John chapter 21, verses four through 19. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish you have just caught.' So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' None of the disciples dare ask him, "'Who are you?' They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish." This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you But when you are old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which peter would glorify god and then he said to him follow me this is the word of the lord let's pray
1: lord our lives are yours We ask you to speak into our lives for your glory, for the building up of your church, and to continue the coming of your kingdom on earth. Amen. So today we come full circle. Nine months ago we began a journey called followers, as in being followers of Jesus. Today we come to the end of that journey. For Peter, that journey began about three years earlier. That's when he and his brother first heard Jesus speak the words, follow me. And they did, they left everything to follow Jesus. And now it's it's on this side of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, on this side of when Peter denied he even knew Jesus the night before his death. And again, Peter hears the words, follow me. Peter knows more now than he did the first time. Hopefully we know more now than we did nine months ago. We've been exploring seven spiritual pathways that are a part of following Jesus. Conviction, our core convictions, that God is love, that he's making all things new, and we follow Jesus together. Call, this isn't just an invitation, it's a call. It's not just a call to join Jesus someday up in heaven. It's a call to join Him in His mission, His mission to make all things new. And if it's a call from God, and it's that significant a mission, then the third pathway is consecrating our lives. In other words, um, bringing the priorities of our lives, our schedules, all of who we are and what we do in alignment with that call. The fourth pathway was and is communion. It's in the middle of this journey. All of what God is trying to do in the world and in us is about relationship. Paul uses the word reconciliation. Another word is restoration. Our relationships with God, with each other in, in the body of Christ, with our neighbors, uh, with, even with our enemies, and ultimately with all of creation, are being restored to that role as people made in the image of God to reign over all creation. It's all about relationship. And I think most of us know, probably from experiences we've had even this last week, that the most challenging part of relationship is communication. That was our next spiritual pathway. And then character. Uh, Jesus is such a force in our lives that he's able to not only alter what we say or do, but who we are finally, confession. Yeah, we're allowed to make mistakes. We live in this grace where that becomes possible and hopefully to learn from our mistakes and yes, our sins. But there's also confession in terms of confessing Jesus as Lord. So yeah, hopefully we know a bit more about what it means to follow Jesus as Peter realized. He knew he was going to be um, rejected. He knew he was going to be lonely at times. He knew the challenges of leadership. But Peter or, or Jesus paints a, a picture that Peter hasn't heard before about Peter's future. About what's going to happen to him when he gets old. Uh, Jesus says your hands are going to be stretched out. Someone else is going to, to put your clothes on. Uh, you're going to go someplace, be led someplace you don't want to go and if he were to speak those words to us today we might think nursing home he's talking about a nursing home and it's true that if we decide to follow jesus there's no guarantee that we won't end up in a nursing home at the end of our lives one of my favorite theologians and missionaries leslie Newbegin, was was such a significant figure in south uh, south india came back to to England, was amazed at how resistant people were to the Gospel, not unlike what it means to live in the Northeast. He wrote several books, was involved in mission work, but ended his life in a nursing home. In fact, he insisted that it be a a very, very ordinary nursing home. So, following Jesus doesn't mean we're going to be spared the things that other people experience. But of course it wasn't a nursing home that Jesus was talking about. Looking back, we know he was talking about a crucifixion. Um, and and we, you know, we know from church tradition that Peter was, in fact, crucified, nailed on a cross, upside down. And, and so uh, whether Peter grasped at all what Jesus was getting at, he certainly sensed the ominous nature of it. And so when Jesus said, follow me still again, why didn't Peter just cut his losses? Just go back to fishing? Well, he's just told us why. It's because of love. He loves Jesus too much for that. Jesus is awesome. What he's done for Peter, what he promises, it's just amazing. He's awesome. And as I think about us, in our response to Jesus' call. And yes, we can hear that call again. In fact, I, I just, you know, even as we've sounded that call throughout this series, this one last time as we end the series, I want myself to come under those words, to hear that call follow me. How we respond to that call will likely be based upon what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about what he means for our lives past, present, and future. And this scripture, I think, highlights some of the key things about Jesus that might inform our decision. For example, there's the fact that Jesus is Lord. That's stated several times in this passage. The backstory for this interaction between Jesus and Peter is uh, that Peter, whether out of boredom or whatever, uh, says to his companions, I'm going to go fishing. And they said, well, we'll go with you. And so Peter gets into his old fishing boat with its nets. They fish all night, catch nothing at all. As they're coming to shore, about 100 yards from shore, there's this person they can vaguely see on the shoreline. He's calling out, did you catch anything? Nah, we didn't. And then the person says, throw your net on the right side of the boat. Peter thinks, well, why not? And so they do, and rather than waiting, and, and, you know, for the, for, and, and then pulling in the nets to see if they have any fish. The nets pull them. They're suddenly full of fish, full of very big fish, we learn later. Well, Peter's becoming suspicious. He looks and he says,
0: It's the Lord.
1: Throws on his outer garment, jumps into the water, leaves his companions to bring in the boat and the fish. It's the Lord. And then when they're all sitting around that fire sharing breakfast, we read, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, I know the word Lord, Greek, uh, the Greek word is Kyrie, it can simply mean master. It could be a way that a disciple or student addresses their teacher. But at this point, it certainly means more than that. We get a, sense of that, the third time that Peter is asked, do you love me by Jesus? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter doesn't say, Lord, you know me. You know me. You know that I love you. No, he says, you know everything. Jesus is Lord. I know many of us have been impacted by the protests, and and for me, it's been trying to study, trying to learn more about the the racial uh, uh, difficulties in this country, the challenges of systemic racism, and how that's come to be. And it's even though I've studied this before, went on a Sancofa several years ago that some of you remember that. It was arranged by the Reformed Church in America. We went to the South, visited some of the civil rights spots, and and, uh, watched videos, had some great discussions. I realized recently how little I still knew about the history of racism in this country. So I've studied it, listened to people's stories, and many of you have as well. And that's moved me, that's impacted what I feel about it. Well, there's also something called theological injustice. Theological injustice is, given what we know about God, given what we've studied about God, theology being the study of God, it's a grave injustice not to acknowledge him as Lord and to give him our allegiance and serve him as Lord. He's the Lord. He's given us our lives. He's promised us eternal life. He has this mission that he needs us for in the world. It's just justice. It's just just. That we follow him. Secondly, he's the Lord of creation. He not only knows everything, he's over everything. And we get some interesting glimpses into that in this story. I mean, was it just a coincidence that as the disciples are coming in and Jesus is calling out to them that? this group of fish, very large fish, larger and filling their nets larger than uh, more than any other catch they'd ever had before. Did that just happen to happen? Was that just a coincidence? Or did Jesus have something to do with that? And by the way, where did he get that bread and those fish that he was cooking on that fire? Did he go begging, you know, knocking on people's door, I, I can you give me some bread this morning? Did he borrow someone's fishing pole? I mean it's possible but Jesus didn't have to. This is the one who fed thousands of people on more than one occasion with a few loaves and fishes. He's the creator. John begins this gospel by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Or as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It doesn't mean he was born. Of course, he was born in this world, but it, it refers to his status. He's the elder brother of all the sons and daughters of God. For in him all things were created, things in heaven And on earth. So, not just what's on earth has been created in him, all things in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things are held together. He's not just a saint, he's sovereign. As Jesus himself said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So he's Lord. He's Lord over everything. He's a Lord over creation. And third, he's alive. Speaking of confession, I've referred before to Romans chapter 10 where Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does our salvation have to do with our believing that Jesus was raised from the dead? Everything. It's because Jesus was raised from the dead, his body, with this transformed body, the body of the coming age, that was the prototype, prototype of our bodies being saved, transformed, being a part of a new creation. It's all connected. If Jesus wasn't raised, we're not going to be raised. And so Jesus isn't just Lord of creation. He's the actual beginning of the new creation. And there's no going back. There's only going forward, leading to the transformation of all things, we have an empty tomb to prove it. We have witnesses to prove it. Behind me, and I'm not sure if you can see it. There's the cross with that's lit in the center, but around that cross is the faint outline of eleven other crosses, representing the lives that were given up by Jesus' apostles, bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's Lord. He's he's Lord of creation, of all things. He's alive. And fourth, he's here. One of the interesting things of all four Gospels is that they all end with Jesus still here. Now, Jesus himself says at the end of our reading today that he's coming back again. He says, when I come back. So that's, it's acknowledged that at least physically he's going to leave and return. Even Luke's gospel ends this way, which is interesting because it's Luke that tells us how Jesus left, that he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. But he doesn't tell us that until the beginning of the book of Acts. Luke also, along with the other gospel writers, want to give us the sense that Jesus is still here. The reason we can still follow him is he's still here. And so Paul will talk about our living in Christ and Christ living in us. Jesus has already said in John 15, Abide with me as I abide with you. In Matthew... He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and maybe some of you are feeling that today, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Let's be yoked together and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Book of Revelation, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. Again, the Gospel of Matthew, where two or three of you gather in my name, I'll be there." He's not only alive, He's here. Fifth, it all starts with breakfast. Let's get practical. In my experience, it's pretty hard to abide in Christ, even to remember to abide in Christ. Unless there are times when I meet up with him. And for me, it happens to be around breakfast. It doesn't have to be. So here is Jesus, you know, the glorified, risen Christ, sitting with those disciples, and I'm sure at that moment it all seemed very, very real. Jesus is physically there. He's even eating the bread and the fish. This is this is (laughs) this is real. And we have to have those times where Jesus is just real, we've got to meet up with him. And yeah, for me it is breakfast, or it begins actually before breakfast. I get up, I do some stretches. The older I get, I really need those stretches. And, uh, and while I'm stretching, I'm reciting scripture. Recite those beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Get to my hamstring, hamstring stretches and I'm saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, Philippians 4. I go to the other hamstring and I shift to, uh, to uh, um, Isaiah and uh, actually Jeremiah, where we read, The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary, reminding me of my particular vocation. And yeah, there's breakfast and my thinking, just jotting down some thoughts as I reflect upon Scripture and preparation for Sunday. There's then going into my study. And yeah, I'm an early riser, and this is my job, this is my life. Of course, I can spend more time, and should spend more time doing this. But meditating on that verse I talked about earlier, and introducing the song, Be Still and Know that I'm God. Psalm 3, How many are my foes, O Lord? How many are rising up against me? How many are saying about me, there is no God? And then going on to talk about the ways in that psalm that I do connect with God. And yeah, it's reading the, the lectionary readings, and up until recently it was simply for myself, but now also for that morning gathering, that Zoom meeting at 9 o'clock when we gather. And I, you know, this is my job, this is my work, I have opportunities all day to, to have uh, reminders that this, this is real, that Jesus is real, and, and yet I can't imagine sustaining that, remembering that without those times where I meet up with him. Are there times when you meet up with Jesus? And isn't it amazing that he wants that? He wants to meet up with us. It may not be over breakfast. It may not even be in the morning. Each of us is different, and how we meet up with Jesus will be different. But if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to have any sense of direction and clarity about what that practically means for our lives, I think we really need times to meet up with Him. And sometimes it'll be just spontaneous in the moment. We're struggling with something, we're not sure what to do, meet up with Him. We call it prayer. It's meeting up with Jesus. And so He's Lord. He's Lord of creation. He's alive. He's here. We join him for breakfast or whenever we meet up with him. And then sixth, he assigns us jobs, roles to play, spheres to influence. In Peter's case, Peter is told to feed Jesus' sheep, to tend his lamb, to be a shepherd. Speaking very simplistically, way too simplistically, there's Paul gathering the sheep. And there's Peter feeding the sheep. Oh, both of them could pastor and and both of them could evangelize. In fact, Peter was the one who had the most successful evangelistic sermon in the New Testament. At Pentecost, thousands of people responded to the gospel. And yet, Peter followed the example of Jesus. When Jesus uh, admitted to being the Messiah because, because of Peter's confession, immediately Jesus gave some of his authority to Peter, the keys of the kingdom, the power to bind and to loose. And Peter also, when he was given that responsibility to lead the church, and it's clear that he's the leader of the church in the first acts, chapters of Acts, at one point he, he gives over the administrative care for the church to six Greek-speaking deacons. And it isn't long before he hands over the leadership of the church itself, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, to James, the brother of Jesus. He's just following the example of Jesus. He's not here to lord it over people. And he's following that, that call of Jesus, a specific vocation to, to pastor people. And so we get these hints that Peter does a lot of traveling. He's, he's people's papa. He's here to care for the sheep. All of us have roles. Wherever we live, work, play, and learn. And some of that involves the natural gifts that God has given us. and We use them for the blessing of others. And some of us have, in addition to that, all of us have spiritual gifts that we use. But in each of those places, we're called to bear witness to Jesus Christ with our lives and sometimes with our words. And so we've got a job to do. That's that's really why we're here. And, um, you know, that job can change. Maybe as you think about coming back to BRC and gathering together and being involved in the life of our community, the Lord will have shown you this during this time that, that your role is to change in some way. And that may mean letting go of another role and trusting God to, uh, to, to find someone else to fill that role. I hope that you will be listening and, and, and preparing for our gathering again. And some of us, we're getting older, we really can't gather very well. We may not even be able to regather again because of our physical limitations. But all of us can do that thing which is the most important thing we can possibly do. It's the thing that Jesus is doing constantly at the right hand of the Father, and that is we can intercede. We can pray for the kingdom to come into particular people's lives and situations. We can pray for the victory of Jesus to penetrate places and, and peoples and hearts that, that just seem so impenetrable. We can intercede in the name of Jesus for his kingdom to come. And finally, yeah, Jesus is, uh, is Lord, he's Lord of creation of everything, he's alive, he's here. Uh, we can meet up with him and really need to meet up with him and he gives us work to do. Finally. He's coming back. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. He says, uh, he says to Peter, who has just said to Peter or just said to, to Jesus,, uh, "So what about him? What's going to happen to him, pointing to the disciple that Jesus loved? That's how he's referred to in the Gospel of John. And Jesus says, "If I want him to stay until I come back, that's up to me." And it's a reminder, by the way, that he's in charge. He's in charge of this mission. He's overseeing it. Part of following, Jesus is following not only our our general instructions for the roles we're to play, but the specific instructions he gives us every day. He's overseeing this mission. And he says, if I want him to stay, that's my business. It's not your business. Of course, he didn't stay. And the author says, Jesus only said if I want him to stay. He didn't say he was going to be alive when I come back. And so he's coming back. And several of his parables, and, and even the other New Testament writers, allude to how important it is to keep that before us. And when he comes back, one of the major things he's going to focus on is whether or not we've carried out our assignments. I grew up in the auction business. And... Um, I first worked for my dad and uncle. They were partners in the business, and so basically time I worked for, for the business, I was with at least one of them, if not both of them. But then my uncle died of a heart attack when I was in high school. And my dad couldn't be everywhere at once, so sometimes he would go in one direction, maybe to L.A. to pick up a load of furniture, or I would do that. Um, and, and then, late in the afternoon, we would meet up. Or I, you know, I would go to the auction building and I would clean and polish and arrange and just maybe try to fix some furniture. Now, if he had come in the afternoon, 30, 3 o'clock, and found me reading a book, I said, Dad, I, I, this is the most amazing book. I just got out of the library and it's not fluffy. I mean, it's, it's, there's some real substance here, amazing characterization. Um, I know my dad enough to know that he's not just going to look at me, <laughs> bewildered, he's going to be a little ticked off. Or what if I said to him, Dad, I've been reading my Bible all day. I've I read all four Gospels. I, you know, I'm so excited about Jesus. I know he's going to be torn because he's a Christian. But he's also going to say, but that's not what I asked you to do. You had work to do today, why didn't you do it?" If We live our lives living for ourselves and expect when Jesus comes back for him to say, did you have a good time? We've got the wrong idea of what all this is, how important it is. You see, each of us is an essential worker. Each of us is an essential worker in an essential business. It's a business that's essential for the salvation of the world. He's coming back. Well, it's been a long time, Pastor. Of course it's been a long time. But then there's the Bible itself that says that for God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day like a thousand years. From God's perspective, it hasn't even been three days yet. He's coming back. It may seem like this pandemic is never going to end, but it will. And we'll be back gathering again. Much more importantly is the fact that He, Jesus, is coming back. And again, He says to us, at the end of this journey that we've been on, follow me. The last leg of this journey has been about confession, confessing our sins, as well as confessing Christ. And both those things come together for Peter at this point, at this juncture in his relationship with Jesus. And that's because what he needs to confess is that he didn't confess Jesus. Rather than taking advantage of those three opportunities when he was asked a point-blank question about his relationship with Jesus, he not only didn't confess Jesus, he denied he even knew Jesus the night before Jesus' execution. And that's the, that's the pink elephant in the room. Um, no one's saying anything about here they are having breakfast, and then Jesus turns to Peter in front of his companions and says, Peter, How could you? How could you? I invested three years of my life in you. You were my guy. You're the one who promised you would never leave me. I even worried you that you were going to to deny me three times before the cock crowed twice. And you still did it. How could you? I still remember when I was 12 years old, had just played in an All-Star game. Had batted cleanup. I had the most hits in the league that year. Was hitting home runs right and left over the fence during All-Star practice. So yeah, he had me batting cleanup during that All-Star game and I didn't get one hit. I hit one of, one of those balls a mile straight up and it was caught by the right fielder. Well, he did what coaches do. He took us out for a meal afterwards, and then he walked up to me and said, Richard, I'm so disappointed in you. I had such high expectations for you. I'm just so disappointed. Of course, Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, how could you be he said, Peter, do you love me? Do you? Do you? Good. Take care of my sheep, would you? I'll be leaving. Take care of my sheep. Nicky Gumbel, in a recent devotional, reflected upon uh, something that's happened the last few years, all over the world really, not just in his church, but uh, something that was begun by Pete Gregg. Uh, some of us have come under his teaching in the prayer course over the last several weeks. Pete Gregg and some others had the idea of people gathering in churches and cathedrals throughout the world the week before Pentecost, praying for people to come to Christ. And some pretty amazing things have happened. Of course, this year they're not able to do that because of the virus. But the very first year, Archbishop Welby, the top religious official in England, gave those people who had gathered three things to pray about, which is really interesting, given the fact that they'd come together to pray for people to come to Christ. And these were the three things. That all Christians find new life in Jesus Christ. Not non-believers, but Christians. That all Christians find new life in Jesus Christ. Second, that all those we meet might see something of Jesus. And third, for the church to overflow with the reality of the presence of Jesus. Those three requests reflect some really good wisdom and insight. You can't just pray for people to come to Jesus. A part of how people will come to Jesus is if we who are Christians find new life in Jesus, respond anew to the call, follow me. People are going to come to know Jesus if they see something of Jesus in us. People are going to come to know Jesus if the Church of Jesus Christ, churches, overflow with the presence of Jesus. Follow me. Call for all of us. People who have never known Christ, and maybe that some of you have never really responded in the affirmative, specifically said yes to that call. He's amazing. He's awesome in your entire life, past, present, and future, belong to Him. It's a call to those of us who are lapsed Christians, for whatever reason. To those of us who are lax Christians. To those of us like the church in, in Ephesus, in the book of Revelation, who, you know, we've been hardworking Christians, we've defended the doctrines of the church but we've left behind, abandoned, our first love for Jesus. Follow me. What does it look like? It looks like taking one step at a time. It's one of the most famous moments in modern American civil rights history. On a chilly December evening in 1955, on a busy street in the capital of Alabama, a 42-year-old seamstress boarded a segregated city bus to return home after a long day of work, taking a seat near the middle, just behind the front white section. At the next stop, more passengers got on, and when every seat in the white section was taken, the bus driver ordered the black passengers in the middle row, the whole row, to stand so one white man could sit. The seamstress refused. Theologian Michael Horton notes that this extraordinary act flowed from Rosa Parks' ordinary life of obeying and following Jesus every day. He writes, Rosa Parks didn't wake up one day and decide to become the first lady of the civil rights movement. She just boarded a bus as she did every day for work and decided that this day she wasn't going to sit in the back as a proper black person was expected to do in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama. She knew who she was, and she knew in that moment what she was to do. She knew the cost, and she made the decision to make that decision no matter what the cost. She was just the right person at the right time and place. What made her the right person were countless influences, relationships, experiences, and decisions. Most of them seemingly insignificant, forgotten. God had already shaped her into the sort of person who would do such a thing. For her, at least, it was an ordinary thing to refuse to sit in the back of the bus on this particular trip. For us, and for all the world, it had radical implications. Most of following Jesus is that next thing that it's clear for us to do. And one never knows when that one thing will change our life, Our family's life, our neighbor's life, our nation, or the world. And we may not even know ourselves in this life how we impacted the lives of others. Most of the time when Jesus says, follow me, and gives us something to do, it means getting up and doing it. For Rosa Parks, It meant staying seated. Shall we pray? Lord, I don't want to get in your way right now. I don't want my words to keep people from hearing your word and your call to them. Lord, would you speak? Would you help us hear what you're saying to each of us this morning?